This recording is of a service given at the Albuquerque Center for Spiritual Living on September 9, 2007, by the Reverend Bonnie Smith. This service is entitled, Stop Charging Your Windmills. Thank you. Wow. It is so good to be back and to see all these faces. And, you know, I noticed at this service, you all moved to a new building, but you still sit in the same place. <laughs> I, I can see everybody exactly where I used to see you. It's great. <laughs> and of course, we've added some new faces. And I always, I said uh, this morning when Martha tells a story about I me, mean, I never know what to expect. And it was interesting because our topic this morning has to do with addiction and compulsive behaviors. And she's talking about my need to take notes, and it's very true. I process through my hands. Those of you who knew me up here signing, it's hard to talk and not move my hands at the same time. So when I listen, I write notes. That's how I process. But before I get started, I first of all want to thank Reverend Patrick for inviting me to come back to my original spiritual home to speak to you this morning. It's wonderful. It feels so good, and it's, it's nice to see and feel the energy is the same, even though you're in a new space, and the space is just more expansive and beautiful, and it just feels really nice to be back. And I also want to recognize a person who also called this space his spiritual home, and he called my house here in Albuquerque his home for the last year. Gary Frank, you might have known him as the guy that carries the oxygen tank. He attended church here. He passed away on Friday. Yeah, and so I um, happened to be coming up here for this, and it turned out I came up for more than one reason. And uh, so I know that um, he is going to be missed by many of us. He was like a brother to me over this last year. Sharing that space with him has been wonderful. So I'd like to take just a few moments because I don't know what his family is going to choose to do, and I don't know that all of us will have a chance to honor his passing. So let's take a few moments of silence just to remember Gary. He was a quiet but gentle presence in many of our lives. And I just know and trust that right now Gary is exactly where he needs to be that he is free from a body that wasn't cooperating with him in the way that he would like. And we are grateful for the way he touched our lives. I'm grateful for the woman at the first service who told me she showed up last Sunday because Gary told her about this place. And I'm grateful that he touched many lives. He brought a gentle presence. He was a great lover of dogs, and he went to that dog park every day and brought love to those people who brought their dogs. So I am grateful for all that he brought and just allow him to go in peace as we hold him in our hearts and say, and so it is. Thank you for indulging me in that one. <sighs> so a few weeks ago, I talked to Reverend Patrick, and he asked me if I could speak this Sunday. And I said, sure. <laughs> is there a topic you'd like me to address? And he told me that the majority of you would be reading um, from Seed of the Soul and that the chapter for this week was addiction. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting? Because this is a topic that has woven in and out of my life over the years in a lot of different ways. And it was very good for me to take the time to pull that in, all of those thoughts, to think back over this topic and to pull it in and weave it in with what I've learned from Science of Mind. So I want to start by reading 
what it said in the chapter, just a little bit out of the chapter that I assume most of you read. I don't know how this is working here. But it says, acknowledging an addiction, accepting that you have an addiction, is acknowledgement that part of you is out of control. The personality resists acknowledging its addictions because that forces it to choose to have to choose to leave a part of itself out of control or to do something about it. Recognition of your own addictions requires inner work. It requires that you look clearly at the places where you lose power in your life, where you are controlled by external circumstances. It requires going through your defenses. So I thought as we address this topic this morning, I should first define what we're talking about by addiction. So in the Random House Dictionary, it says, addiction is the state of being enslaved to a habit or practice or to something that is psychologically or physically habit-forming, as in narcotics, to such an extent that its cessation causes severe trauma. Now, Ernest Holmes wrote an article called Alcoholism, Its Cause and Cure from the Viewpoint of Science of Mind. And these are a few thoughts that he put in that article. One's attempt to avoid the realities of everyday contact with life has reached a point where delusion alone can compensate one's imagination for that which one desires to become or obtain. And he also said, the desire to lose oneself, even to destroy oneself, becomes stronger than the assurance that one may meet and handle any situation that arises. That's how he defined addiction. Now, when I went to uh, the concordance for the science of mind to look up the word addiction, I didn't find that word. What I found was a whole lot of references to habit. So I thought, well, what is the comparison here between addiction and habit? It seems in the science of mind textbook, Ernest Holmes referred to some of these behaviors as habits. And in the dictionary, a habit is an acquired behavior pattern regularly followed until it becomes almost involuntary. And further down, it does mention addiction, such as to narcotics. So one of the things that I think is important to acknowledge is that sometimes we have habits that serve us, and sometimes we have habits that don't serve us. And what we're talking about this morning is looking at some of those habits that no longer serve us, that have reached the point, have crossed over that point of serving us and have become something that enslave us, that we are now addicted to. And I'm referring to addictive and compulsive behaviors. And this is what I'm, the, the key word here is behavior. It's something that someone does. It's not who you are. And it stems from a belief or an idea that one is limited or separated from the infinite or God. Now, as human beings, having this human experience, I would say that addiction and compulsive behavior is an equal opportunity employer. <laughs> okay? I don't like to leave anyone out. Those of you who know me know that I like to include everyone. And so this morning, if you heard this topic or if you read this chapter and you thought, well, I don't drink, I don't do drugs, I don't smoke, I don't sleep around, and I don't eat too much, so I'm fine, I don't need this topic, I promise I'm going to speak to you as well. Okay? <laughs> because what I'm talking about is a state of being enslaved to a habit or a practice in our lives. And that doesn't always necessarily mean the big ones that we think of when we talk about addiction. So to prove that point to you, I'm going to share a bit of my own personal story with you. I started out as a child, a young child, wanting to save the world. 
I had many dreams and visions about this. When the Vietnam War was going on, I had dreams of going over there and stopping it. That's how much I wanted to save the world. And so and when I got into high school, and a lot of the friends of mine were starting to do drinking and drugging and exploring in that area, I knew that that was wrong, but I thought they were pretty exciting people. They seemed to be having more fun than I was. So I figured out a way to participate in their lives without joining in the behavior. I started carrying Visine and gum. And so after they'd used, they could have some Visine for their eyes or gum for their breath. And I would make sure that they could get past the bouncers at the football game or they'd stay away from the policemen. They would get home safely. And I developed a role for myself in the life of people who were using substances. And I found a way to be in the midst of this exciting behavior without having to participate in it. And I created what I called later uh, my own, I became a self-made Al-Anon. <laughs> <laughs> and this worked okay in high school, but when I got to college, and when I was dragging my roommate out of snowbanks at four in the morning so she wouldn't freeze to death, I was in school in, in Iowa, it wasn't fun anymore. And when we were trying to help her to succeed in the midst of a heavy, heavy drinking addiction uh, to make it through graduation and finally into rehab, um, it, it really wasn't fun anymore. And I had a person show up at my door and tell me, well, you're a codependent. I said, I don't buy her alcohol. I don't help her drink. No, I'm not. I didn't understand what that meant. But I kept mulling around in my head some of the things that this person told me. And eventually, years later, I did find my way into an Al-Anon meeting. And in that meeting, I heard a statement. And that statement was, would you rather be right or happy? And I'm thinking, okay, something's wrong here. Right or happy? How can you be happy if you're not right? I had spent my whole life proving I was right. I was a good girl. I chose the right path. I did all the right things. I got all the right grades. How could you be happy and not be right? That statement really had to circle in my brain for a long time, many years. I kept thinking, what do they mean? Do I want to be right or happy? Well, then I found my way into this spiritual community. And I started learning about religious science, and I started learning about the principles of religious science. And one of the things that I was told is that there is one mind, and that one mind is the mind of God. And I thought, okay, I'm going to test this out. If I know what's right for you, <laughs> and I want you to know this because I was really good at letting people know what I thought was right for them. Okay? Maybe if I just tell the mind of God this, they'll find out. And if there is only one mind, then they will. So I started trying this. And it was amazing how many times the person who I had this right idea for would come up to me later and say, Guess what I read? Guess what I heard on the radio? Guess what my sponsor told me? Guess what so and so told me when I ran into them in the store? They were getting the message some other way, and it didn't have to come through me. So for the first time, I realized that I might be right, but I didn't have to be the vehicle of rightness to the world. I didn't have to be the one that saved the world. I didn't have to be the one to inform the world about what to do and how to be right. And it certainly started to change my relationships with people. And I started to realize I could be happy without having to be that vehicle of rightness in their life. And I started to let go a little bit of that addiction to being right. Now, another thing that I heard in Foundations was, you are not a victim, that none of us are victims. There are no victims. There are no perpetrators. 
there are no heroes. And I thought, how do I wrap my brain around that one? And during ministerial school, during my last semester of ministerial school, which was last spring, one of the classes we took, that was their main focus, was giving us an experience and giving us a time to really look at these different roles that we assign either ourselves or other people in our lives. And we were again being told there are no victims, there are no perpetrators, that we as practitioners with small p's as well as big p's of practitioners of religious science, we see the wholeness of God in every person. We don't see them as a victim or as a perpetrator or as a hero. Well, I had to take this into contemplation because I was experiencing something at the time where I was feeling a bit victimized. And I was attached to that story. And I also was feeling kind of heroic for dealing with it. And so I took it into meditation. And I was at my last retreat for um, the Holmes Institute in a beautiful place in Santa Barbara up in the trees. The sun's coming up in the morning. And I literally had like a vision that I want to share with you. How many of you know the story of Don Quixote? Cervantes is Don Quixote. Well, I spent a semester studying that book when I was in college. So as I was sitting on that bench, I pictured here was Don Quixote on his steed, which I think was really a donkey. And he was charging after the dragons to save his true love, Dulcinea. Well, the whole story of him and Dulcinea is a different topic because I don't even think she felt for him like he did for her. But he felt like she was endangered by these dragons, so he was going to slay them, and so he would charge after them, and then they would knock him flat on his back because they were really, what? Windmills. Windmills. They were an illusion. And what we keep being told in religious science is that all of this is an illusion. And Ernest Holmes says, there have been a dragon in every culture. And the dragon stands for that which binds us to duality. And what I'm proposing today is that that duality that we're bound to is the story of being a victim or being a hero. And if you think about Don Quixote, he had to first consider himself a victim of the dragon before he could become the hero and go slay it. The two things were really one. And I had to realize that it really was true. Everything was part of the one, the victim, the hero. And all of it was an illusion. Now, before you get up and walk out on me, <laughs> I'm going to break it down a little bit. Think about how many times people say, well, I had to pick up that cigarette again. I was so nervous. My life was so stressed. There's the victim story. How many people drink because of the horrors of their past or drug to, uh, to null what experiences they might have had? The victim story comes out. How many people who live with those people who are using these substances say, aren't I good for standing by them and supporting them? The hero is coming out while this victim is playing out their story. And a lot of times I... I think these stories started in our childhood. So I'm not here to say that what you experienced that was painful in childhood is an illusion in that sense, because I acknowledge that many of us experienced painful things where we felt victimized, where we were either emotionally or spiritually or physically abused. And as children, we were stuck. 
As children, we couldn't say, excuse me, Mom and Dad, I'm going to live down the street. I don't enjoy this household. Okay, we couldn't do that. As children, we couldn't defend ourselves against larger adults. As children, we couldn't change our circumstances. But as adults today in this culture, anyone in this sanctuary can change what is going on in their life. They can say, excuse me, that doesn't work for me anymore. I do not choose to be treated that way anymore. I don't choose to carry on my story of victimhood or my story of herohood anymore. And I would suggest or propose to you that if you're still charging at the windmills of your childhood, they are the illusion of a windmill. They're not really the dragon that they might be perceived as. And the greater illusion is that you have to keep charging at it. The greater illusion is that you can let it go. We can change that. That's the promise that comes through both religious science and the 12-step programs that help people release themselves from addictions. I want to read to you, <laughs> I love this podium, <laughs> from Ernest Holmes' words about what a habit is. A habit is desire objectified, the continuous character of one's thoughts and feelings, desire for something that will give satisfaction, at the root of all habit is one basic thing, the desire to express life. There is an urge to express in all people, and this urge operates through the channels of creative mind, looses energy into action, and compels the individual to do something. Back of all this desire is the impulse of spirit to express. In humans, this impulse must express at the level of its consciousness. So some of us express in ways that are destructive, and some of us express in ways that are constructive. And what the religious science practitioner knows, what those of us that are learning these principles knows, is that every person is the full and complete expression of the truth, and as such, we are free from any sense of limitation. That we are a unique individuality expressing all the attributes of God. So how do we get from the place of feeling the impact of our past, of our childhood, and possibly even recreating it in our present because that's what we're comfortable with and that's what we know, to releasing ourselves from these attachments to our victim story or our hero story or whatever story it is that we bring along with us. Ernest Holmes says that the first step that you need to do is recognize the problem and bring it forward. In the 12-step programs, we say we admit that our lives are unmanageable. Ernest Holmes says the second thing you need to do is have a desire for change. And in the 12-step program, we say we turn our will and our lives over to the power of God as we understand God, over to the care of God as we understand God. We get to define what that looks like for us. Now, that doesn't mean that you take your victim hat off and put on your hero hat and say, okay, I can do this, I'm going to quit or I'm going to change my life. How many of you know of a team in the archetype of, of heroes, a team of heroes that saved the world? Anybody ever heard of that? <laughs> heroes are out there on their own, trudging forward, trying to do it all for themselves. And what both Ernest Holmes and the 12-step programs are trying to say is you can do it together. You don't need to be a hero. You don't switch one hat for the other. You find a group of people that support you in that process of releasing yourself from charging over and over and over again at those windmills. And you can find that through working with a practitioner if you want work one-on-one, -on -one, 
who working in a 12-step program that meets your needs, what you find is a group of people who've been charging at the same kind of windmill you have, and they come together and help each other stop that experience. Or you can work with a therapist. One of the things Ernest Holmes said in the article that I quoted from earlier is that you need to bring all of this stuff to light and look at it and shed the light on it. Um, a friend of mine's mother's favorite comment always was, if it's dark in the closet, turn on the light. And that's what we're talking about, is exposing those things to the light. They become smaller that way. You know in the dark how things look like monsters, the shadows get bigger. Once you shed light on them, you can reduce them back to a size where they're more manageable. And you don't have to do that alone. That's one of the things I think is really key and important to remember. <clears throat> in Seed of the Soul, he says, in order to release your addiction, it is necessary to enter your in." in adequacies to recognize that they are real and to bring them into the light of consciousness to heal. And Ernest Holmes says what we must realize is that the basis of the 12-step program is declaring the truth in order to heal the fact. The truth is the power greater than we are, and the fact is the conditions which created the principal manifestation called alcoholism or whatever other thing it was that we pulled into our life as an addictive or compulsive behavior. And so to find that support, to find a way to bring about um, a group of people who can support us in what we're doing is really important. And one thing to remember is, if you have been doing the dance of the hero for some victim in your life, and you decide to take that hat off, that person is either going to need to find another hero to work with them in that dance, or they're going to give up being a victim. But that's not what it's about for you. You focus on your own thing. And if you're the victim and you've got some hero in your life, which most people do, who's really feeling good about themselves for putting up with what you do, and you decide to stop being a victim, they lose their job as a hero and they might not be so happy about that either. So be aware of the fact when you choose to remove one of these hats, the other people that have been dancing the dance with you might have to go somewhere else to find someone to dance with. And that's why you look for a group of people, whether, again, practitioners or programs, meetings, some group of people who will support you in taking on a new way of looking at your life and a way of living your life. Now, one of the comments I've heard over the years as I've come to religious science from people who attend 12-step meetings is, I don't know that I want to go to a place where I have to say, I am and state the disease. I am an alcoholic. I am... Um, addicted to drugs. I am a compulsive overeater. And when I thought about that as I researched this, I think that Ernest Holmes would support, and I think the meaning and the reason for doing it is that that is the place where you're shedding light on the problem. Making that statement is shedding light on whatever that addiction is. And then, as you go through that process and as you live your life free from that, what I've found are many people are now saying, Instead of, I am an alcoholic, I am gratefully recovered today, or I am gratefully clean and sober today. A young man at a Silomar said, I am substance free. I love that term. Or they're saying, I am abstinent today, as opposed to I am a compulsive overeater. And I get to say, I have released my need to save the world, and I choose happiness over being right today. <laughs> Thank you. 
Now, many people are probably still possibly wondering, but am I good enough? Do I know enough to be able to do this? And I discovered the other day, so I have to share with you some amazing words of Ernest Holmes. This is his book called Ideas of Power. Actually, they're transcripts of talks that he gave. So these are words that were spoken at a talk. And this is the third volume of the Holmes papers. And he answers that question, am I good enough? You are plenty good enough because God made you. What you have to ask yourself is not am I good enough, but rather am I thinking constructive enough? Do I love enough? Do I give enough? Am I happy enough? Am I kind enough? These are the evaluations that are spiritual, not are you good enough? Of course you're good enough. And then do I know enough? He says, this is a bad one. Must I take another class to get that sacred lost word? Nonsense. There isn't enough in all that to even make a decent dish of pea soup. <laughs> now, I don't think he would say you don't have to go to classes. But I think he, what he would say is that when you do go to classes, this is what you discover. Of course you know enough. If you know how to think, you know enough. If you know how to believe there is something greater than you are, you know enough. The whole question is, do you do it? And do you believe now that your word is in prayer or in the law of mind and action or is a seed of thought planted in the absolute and that it must bear fruit? Now remember this. You are the person. This is the place. Now, today, is the occasion. Right here is the time. The word is in your own mouth. You are good enough, you know enough, you are spiritual enough. And so it is. Now, God is present. God is expressing and showing up as each individual in this room. And I am so grateful for that flame that never goes out, that part of us that is always connected to spirit, that piece of spirit that wants to express more fully through each individual. And I give thanks today for each person who opens a bit more to allow that spirit to come through, who stops charging at those elusive windmills, lets go of victimhood, lets go of herohood, and just allows himself to be seated fully, deeply, and presently in spirit. I'm so grateful for this message. I'm grateful for programs that support us on this path. I'm grateful for each person present here today, and I just know and allow it to be as spirit takes each person and more fully envelops them and more fully expresses through them. We just take a deep breath and know that we are full and complete exactly as we are. And together we say, and so it is.